This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Psychological Interventions for Pediatric Chronic Pain by Dr. Karen Kaczynski. I'm Karen Kaczynski and I'm a psychologist at the Pain Treatment Service and the Headache Clinic at Children's Hospital in Boston. So I'm going to start by talking about psychological interventions for pediatric chronic pain. So just to give a general overview, I'm going to start by giving some general information about pain and how it works. Then I'll present some theoretical models that are relevant to pediatric chronic pain. I'll next talk about the relationship between stress and pain, and then give some specific information about cognitive behavioral assessment and treatment of pediatric chronic pain. Lastly, I'll talk about acceptance and commitment therapy, or ACT, which is a new but promising psychological intervention for pediatric pain. Definitions. According to IASP, pain is defined as an unpleasant sensory and emotional experience associated with actual or potential tissue damage and described in terms of such damage. There's a distinction between pain and nociception. So nociception involves stimulation of nerves that carry information about tissue damage to the brain. Pain, however, is a much broader experience. It's considered a subjective experience possibly involving nociception, but not necessarily, but also involving the person's genetics, temperament, past history with painful experiences, their cognitive and emotional responses to pain, as well as the responses from important people in their lives and in their environment. All of these factors can modulate the person's pain experience. There's a distinction between acute and chronic pain, which is important to be aware of. Acute pain is pain which is relatively recent onset, it often involves a clear precipitant or physiological etiology, such as an injury or acute disease process, and it serves a protective um, role in the body. So what that means is that the pain is there to signal the brain that there's something wrong and the person needs to change their activity or take certain measures to allow the body to heal or to prevent further injury. In contrast, chronic pain is pain which persists for three or more months, there may or may not be a clear precipitant or etiology, so at times chronic pain may onset following an injury or a surgery, but the pain persists longer than the natural healing process would take. Other times chronic pain can just onset out of the blue with no clear physical trauma or precipitant. And in this case, the pain does not serve a protective purpose um, because there's no damage to the tissue in the body that the pain is serving to protect. The focus of this talk will be on chronic pain. So several important aspects of the pain experience that are important to keep in mind are that pain is inconsistent, subjective, and contextual. So what that means is that the same pain may be experienced differently by the same individual on different days, in different contexts, in different situations. Pain may also be experienced very differently individual to individual depending on the circumstances. So for example, um, pediatric patients that I work with often say that their pain is worse when they're lying in bed at night because they don't have anything to take their mind off of their pain and they're just focusing on their pain a lot. Um, in contrast to when they're talking to a friend or doing something they enjoy when they're a little bit more distracted from their pain. The pain may be the same, 
um, but the person's experience of it can differ significantly based on the context. Theoretical models. So in understanding pain, um, many different theoretical models have been developed, but the most important um, in terms of this talk um, are a couple. One is the sensory model, which is a very kind of concrete model that says that the extent of pain is consistent with the extent of tissue damage in the body. Um, this model is very basic and just made a lot of intuitive sense. Um, it was developed early in the 20th century. However, the model was inconsistent with clinical presentations of patients with chronic pain who at times may have presented with um, an injury which had healed, although their pain persisted. Other times, there seemed to be a poor correlation between the pain and any underlying tissue damage at all. Um, and it appeared that the person's emotional and cognitive responses to the pain may have been playing a role in the amount of pain they perceived. So this model was discarded, um, and in its replacement, Melzack and Wall developed the gate control theory in 1965. And this model describes or explains why there is so much variability in the pain experience. In general, the theory states that there are sensory, cognitive, affective, and behavioral factors which contribute to the pain experience. Physiologically, um, the model indicates that there are peripheral pain receptors which transmit pain signals to the dorsal horn of the spinal cord via small fiber nerves. There are also descending inhibitory large fiber nerves which can modify or stop the pain signals from being transmitted. These inhibitory processes are due to cognitive, affective, and behavioral factors. So the model states that there are, actual, there are actually nerves which serve the process of inhibiting or modulating the pain signals coming in from the periphery of the body, and these are the actual pain gate, which can control how much of the pain signals are going to get through to the brain. Although the underlying physiology in this model was not ultimately supported, um, the theory behind it indicating that cognitive and affective and behavioral factors can modulate the pain experience has been supported. And in fact, um, there are imaging studies which show that in a painful experience, there is activation in both sensory and affective regions of the brain. So this multifactorial perspective on how pain works is what's resulted in the development of cognitive and behavioral treatments to address chronic pain. So the biopsychosocial model was developed as a framework for understanding the pain experience based on the multifactorial model of pain. It states that there are biological, psychological, and social factors that influence the pain experience, and these are all of the factors that we can address in cognitive and behavioral treatment. The biopsychosocial model is a, a complex model which shows that there are multiple factors imp impacting the person's subjective pain experience. First, we think about just the physiological aspect of pain. So this is things like tissue damage, nerve malfunction, scar tissue, and acute disease process that sort of thing, anything physiological and generally what people think about when they tell you why they're in pain. This is something that you know we acknowledge may be underlying their pain, but it's not something that's directly addressed in cognitive and behavioral treatment. Pain sensation is sort of the subjective experience of pain. As I said, some people might experience pain differently in different situations. There's also variability in terms of people's sensitivity to pain and how um, high of a threshold they have for being bothered by their pain. So the same pain in different individuals may be experienced differently just because people have different levels of sensitivity for pain. Thoughts, how people think about their pain, can impact the pain experience. So oftentimes, 
when people have chronic pain, they may have negative thoughts. They may think things like, I can't take it anymore, it's never gonna get better, this isn't fair, why is this happening to me? Although those thoughts are very normal and natural in the situation of chronic pain, those thoughts are not very helpful and that negative cognitive response can actually intensify their pain experience. Additional cognitive factors such as focusing attention on pain or having expectations that pain will increase in a certain situation can also intensify the pain experience. Emotional factors such as how the person responds emotionally to their pain can also play a role. So oftentimes when people have chronic pain, their emotions tend to be more negative. They might get stressed, anxious, depressed, frustrated, angry. And again, while all of these emotional responses are normal and natural given the circumstances, they aren't necessarily so helpful and they may actually intensify or exacerbate the pain experience as well. Behavioral factors may also play a role. So some people in the context of chronic pain may respond as if they are having an acute pain um, experience. So with acute pain, people tend to rest, um, discontinue activities, guard, um, that sort of thing. And while those responses may be helpful with acute pain because they allow the body to heal, those responses are not very helpful with chronic pain because they may perpetuate the pain cycle. They may contribute to increased disability and deconditioning um, and generally not help the person recover. In contrast, if people remain physically active and participate in things like physical or occupational therapy, that can actually help them improve their functioning and that may help them close the pain gate or decrease the amount of pain sensation. Lastly, social factors can also play a role. So this is how other people in the environment respond to the person in pain. If friends are dismissive or critical regarding their pain, that can be stressful and focus the person's attention more on their pain, and it may increase their negative thoughts and feelings, intensifying the pain experience as well. In contrast, a lot of times with pediatric chronic pain, parents may unintentionally um, reinforce poor coping with pain by allowing kids to get out of regular responsibilities, not go to school, giving them special attention. Um, and while this is a very normal response when your child is, is in pain and you want to help them feel mm -hmm. better, these types of responses can actually reinforce the pain experience as well. So one thing that all of these factors have in common is that they can increase stress. And increased stress intensifies current pain and can contribute to chronic pain. Stress and pain. So when we think about the relation uh, between stress and pain, um, we have to start by talking about the flight or fight response. This is an automatic physiological response to real or threatened harm. And when we perceive harm in the environment, our body has certain changes that occur that allow us to keep ourselves safe, whether that involves running away to escape from the threat or preparing to fight off whatever the threat may be. These changes include increased muscle tension, changes in the way our um, breathing rate is or our heart rate, um, changes in vasodilation or constriction, changes in the way our GI tract is functioning. And pain itself is actually perceived as a threat and results in a stress response. So all of those physiological changes do occur in the context of pain. So with acute pain, there may be persistent increased muscle tension, altered cardiac and pulmonary function, constriction, contraction, and increased motility in the gut, as well as vasodilation. While these processes may be protective in the short term if there were an immediate threat or injury, they're not so helpful long term. In the case of chronic pain, 
there may be a prolonged stress reaction which can actually exacerbate and maintain pain directly. Physiological reactions such as increased muscle tension, vasodilation, and constriction in the gut can directly increase pain. But also, um, over the long term, these processes can contribute to central sensitization. So what this means is that if the body is experiencing a prolonged state of stress or pain, the brain is going to adapt to that state and there will be actual changes in the brain which serve ultimately to maintain the chronic pain independently of whatever is going on in the periphery of the body. So the pain sort of takes on a life of its own in the brain um, and maintains itself based on these changes in the brain. Research has supported this um, idea of central sensitization in chronic pain. Um, there have been found to be alterations in the HBA immune access as well as changes in the way neurons communicate with each other. Um, there are increases in excitability and synaptic efficiency in neurons that process pain signals in the CNS, as well as decreased pain inhibitory processes that have been shown to be found in patients with prolonged pain, um, supporting the idea of central sensitization. So the general idea is that when a person is in a state of prolonged chronic pain, the brain is going to change and alter itself based on that experience, and based on those brain changes, the pain will persist. So what does this look like in an actual patient? Um, what we see is that our patients with chronic pain get stuck in a very vicious cycle where, you know, first there's the pain and then they often respond as if there's an acute pain situation, meaning that they may reduce their activity, withdraw from school, discontinue sports, spend more time at home resting, hoping that that will allow their body to heal and the pain to go away. However, in the case of chronic pain, that unfortunately is not the case. So reducing their activities and their engagement in their lives results in other issues such as stress due to being out of school, um, increased physical deconditioning, boredom, emotional distress, anxiety. Um, all of these things can increase their sensitivity to pain um, and focus their attention more on pain, resulting in increased pain and continuing that cycle of pain and disability. Psychological Interventions So when we think about treating pediatric chronic pain, we have to look at the larger picture and think about not just treating the pain itself, but also treating the emotional distress and disability which goes along with it. So this is where cognitive behavioral therapy comes in. So cognitive behavioral therapy is a psychological treatment which is based on cognitive behavioral theory. This theory generally shows that thoughts, feelings, and behaviors are interrelated. Therefore, if we change what we do or how we're thinking, we can change how we're feeling. CBT targets the stress response and cognitive, emotional, and behavioral responses to pain. These are all of the different factors, according to the biopsychosocial model, that can open the pain gate and intensify the pain experience. We also teach cognitive and behavioral coping strategies, to help patients manage pain better and increase their functioning. So cognitive behavioral therapy starts with a very thorough assessment. We evaluate the emotional, behavioral, and cognitive functioning of the child, as well as any psychosocial stressors which may increase um, their general emotional distress and also could potentially exacerbate their pain. We also do a careful assessment of any antecedents or consequences of pain episodes. So an antecedent may be an event which triggers or precedes a pain episode. For example, antecedents could include things like family conflict, a test at school, increased physical activity, 
Consequences are factors which may serve to reinforce pain episodes. So these things might be receiving extra parental attention following a pain episode, being allowed to miss out on school or skip homework, that sort of thing. And both consequences and antecedents are good targets for treatment. So cognitive behavioral therapy addresses both the cognitive and behavioral aspects um, of a person's experience. And these are things that we target in treatment with people with chronic pain. Oftentimes, as I said, people with chronic pain engage in negative cognitions. Um, but the more they think negatively, that may intensify the pain that they're experiencing. So these negative thoughts are identified, challenged, and modified in treatment. For example, some people with chronic pain may think, my pain will never go away. Again, although that's sort of an understandable natural response to chronic pain, it's not the most helpful way to think. And it's not necessarily the most realistic way to think either because the person doesn't really know how things are going to go in the future. It's not definite that their pain will never go away. So we try to identify that thought and sort of point out the flaws in it and think about different ways for the person to think. So for example, in the case of episodic pain, we may encourage the person to think, well, you know, I've survived pain episodes before and they do not last forever. I can get through this as well. In the case of more persistent pain, which is not episodic, we might help the patient think, I can live a full life even if pain is in the picture and I don't know if my pain is going to last, how long my pain is going to last. By changing the way they're thinking about their pain, we decrease the stress reaction and decrease the amount that they're focusing negatively on their pain and this also may allow them to re-engage in their life. We also teach behavioral coping strategies which are really helpful at addressing some of the negative thoughts but also the stress reaction and I'll talk about those in more detail next. Structured problem solving is also used to address stressors and improved functioning. So for example, a lot of patients with chronic pain um, may have difficulties in the school setting. They may have missed a lot of school. They may be very behind. They may have makeup work which is piling up and increasing the amount of stress and pain they're experiencing. So we'll work closely with parents and school personnel to set up a school plan um, to make sure that they're able to be functioning in school to the extent that they're capable and that they're provided with adequate supports so that they're not overwhelmed. Parental involvement is also a very important piece of treatment. Um, so we often will teach parents the same coping strategies that we're teaching their kids so that parents can support um, adaptive coping with pain in their children. We also help parents be better advocates and reinforce their children for active positive pain coping rather than avoidance or passive coping. And in fact, results of a recent Cochrane Review article show that CBT, which involves a parental component in that way, has been found to be really effective um, for improving pain and functioning in children and adolescents. So the other piece of cognitive behavioral therapy is the behavioral piece. So behavioral coping skills are taught to reduce pain and distress and improve functioning. An added benefit of these coping skills is that they serve as a distraction because you really have to kind of focus on them and pay attention to what you're doing in order to do them correctly, and that doesn't allow you to focus as much on your pain. So by distracting oneself, um, it helps kids kind of re-engage in something that's positive rather than focusing on their pain. So diaphragmatic is the first coping skill that we often teach because it's the easiest for kids to pick up and it can be immediately very, very helpful. The idea is that normal breathing may be disrupted by pain or stress. So we teach deep, slow, diaphragmatic breathing to reduce tension and create focused awareness. 
So we teach kids to breathe deeply with their diaphragm all the way into their bellies and to pretend that they have a balloon in their bellies and they need to fill up the balloon with as much air as possible. We teach them to breathe in slowly through their nose to a count of four and then out through their mouth to a count of five or six, about 10 times. And this type of slow, focused breathing can send a signal to the brain um, that everything is okay in the environment and that stress response is not necessary and therefore the stress response will be reduced or turned off. This is a strategy which can be useful in any context, at school, at home, with friends, because you don't need any materials to do it. Um, you can do it pretty subtly so other people may not even know that you're doing it. And it can even be effective with younger children. We often use props such as pinwheels or bubbles to teach younger children to do deep breathing and it can be effective for them as well. Progressive muscle relaxation is another strategy that we teach. So a common reaction when in pain is to tense up one's muscles. And if people are in chronic pain, they may be chronically tense and they may not even realize it. But that chronic muscle tension can certainly exacerbate the pain that they're feeling. So PMR involves progressively tensing and relaxing various muscle groups in the body and it allows people to improve their body awareness and increase the conscious control of muscle activity. So by gaining more awareness about what's going on in their body, they can learn to recognize that muscle attention when it happens and reduce it on their own. Visual imagery is another strategy that we use with kids and this can be very effective because kids are very good at using their imaginations and daydreaming and we just sort of build on those natural skills that they already have. So visual imagery just involves imagining a pleasant, relaxing scenario and imagining all of the sensory components of that scenario. So what they're seeing, what they're hearing, what they're smelling, what their tactile experiences, um, as many of the components of the scenario that they can imagine. And with this type of deep focused imagery, the brain reacts as if the experience is actually happening. This can decrease the stress response and decrease negative cognitions through distraction and it also increases subjective feelings of relaxation and well-being, which can be very helpful for people who are living with chronic pain um, and don't have that type of experience very often. Self-hypnosis is another strategy. It's similar to visual imagery, um, but it involves more of a permissive suggestive language and there's often a specific induction that's used. This type of imagery can be used to alter the sensory or emotional component of pain, or both. And fMRI research has, also sh has actually shown that you can alter either the sensory or emotional component of pain through self-hypnosis. We also use self-hypnosis to help the person um, mentally alter their own pain experience. So we may ask the child to imagine or visualize what their pain looks like to them. So for example, a child may visualize their pain as a big red ball of fire. Once they have an image of the pain in their heads, we ask them to alter it in some way so it's not affecting them or so it's not as strong anymore. So a child may take, imagine that they have a bucket of water that they're pouring over the fire to, to put it out so that the pain is not as strong anymore. And this can be very effective at reducing the person's subjective pain experience. We also use personal relaxation strategies. So if a child naturally enjoys something like art, listening to music, um, taking a bath, um, reading magazines, anything like that, anything that they already engage in that they find relaxing or distracting, 
we use that as well um, to help support active coping. Sometimes kids just need to be reminded that these strategies are already there in their repertoires and that they can be used to help them manage pain episodes. And one very important component of teaching these relaxation strategies is that practice is key. So these are skills like anything else, although we feel like we all breathe and use our muscles you know, naturally day to day, this is a very different type of breathing um, and muscle relaxation and imagery. And so the more kids practice, the better they'll get at it and the more effective these skills will be for them. I generally recommend to patients that they practice relaxation for 10 minutes once or twice a day, um, whether they're in pain or not so that by the time they have a pain episode, they're really good at these strategies and they, they will be most effective. So biofeedback is a type of relaxation training which is often used in pediatric chronic pain. And biofeedback just involves getting information about a biological process and using that information to guide behavior. So one form of biofeedback that we are all familiar with is a scale. So if you're concerned about your weight, you may step on the scale and based on the number of, on the scale, you can alter your diet or your activity level in order to change the number. That's the idea behind biofeedback. It's just using technology to find out information about our body so that we can alter our behavior. In the sense of chronic pain, we use very simple sensors to evaluate various aspects of the stress response. Things like breathing and heart rate, muscle tension, um, skin conductance, peripheral temperature, all of these physiological processes are going to be altered whether the person is in a relaxed state or a more stressed out state. We use these sensors to um, get information about how the, body is, how the child's body is doing and this information is shown on a computer screen and based on the information on the computer screen, the child can use different relaxation strategies, deep breathing, imagery, whatever, in order to relax their body and reduce those stress responses. This type of treatment has been found to be really helpful um, for kids who are opposed to traditional talk therapy um, and more comfortable with technology. A lot of adolescent boys find biofeedback to be more acceptable to them because they don't necessarily want to talk about feelings, um, but working with a computer feels more comfortable. It can also be really useful for increasing buy-in for psychological treatment. A lot of kids with chronic pain may be resistant to working with a psychologist because they feel like that may imply that their pain is not real or it's all in their head. Um, and it sort of dismisses um, the physiological component of pain, which is what a lot of people like to focus on. So by allowing people to try biofeedback and showing them concretely that there are changes in their bodies that occur when they're in pain or when they're stressed and that they can use different relaxation strategies to reduce those, those stress responses and help themselves feel better, people may increase their motivation or acceptance to engaging in additional psychological therapies. So biofeedback can be used as a treatment on its own independently or it may also be used as one component of cognitive behavioral therapy in conjunction with the other coping strategies as well as the, the cognitive interventions. It's been found to be really effective at reducing pain in children and adolescents in a variety of chronic pain conditions and is particularly effective in pediatric headache. So there's a lot of really strong empirical evidence for cognitive behavioral therapy in pediatric chronic pain. It's been found to be effective at reducing pain and in improving functioning in youth with chronic abdominal pain. It's also been shown to be effective immediately but also at long-term follow-up in children with a variety of chronic pain conditions. And most recently, online cognitive behavioral interventions have been found to be feasible and effective at reducing pain and improving functioning 
in youth with chronic headache, abdominal pain, and musculoskeletal pain. The focus on online interventions recently is very encouraging um, because it allows us to access a larger number of patients, particularly those um, in areas where there are less psychological resources. So lastly, I'll briefly talk about Acceptance and Commitment Therapy, or ACT. ACT is an extension of traditional cognitive behavioral therapy. However, there is a distinction between ACT and CBT. ACT does not directly focus on changing thoughts or feelings. Rather, negative thoughts and feelings are accepted as a natural part of living a full life. It's the attachment to and belief in these negative thoughts and feelings that is challenged in ACT. In addition, in ACT, behavioral coping strategies are not taught. Coping skills are seen as attempts to avoid pain and distress and therefore are not encouraged. In contrast, in ACT therapy, the therapist may use mindfulness techniques and in vivo exposure to increase acceptance of pain and distress. Mindfulness techniques include allowing one's thoughts, including uncomfortable and painful thoughts, to come and go in their mind like leaves on a stream without getting attached to them. ACT also involves using in vivo exposure exercises, so supporting the patient in engaging in activities they may have previously avoided because they were concerned that the activity may result in increasing pain. By allowing the person to engage in activities they avoided before, despite the presence of pain, um, we can confront negative thoughts and feelings about pain and help the person live a fuller life. ACT also involves focus on living a life based on one's values. So if one's values are to be a good student, a helpful friend, um, a good athlete, but the pain is interfering in all of those domains, an ACT therapist may help the patient focus on, you know, engaging in activities that are consistent with their values, whether or not pain is in the picture. So while ACT does involve addressing thoughts and behaviors, um, and certainly the goal is increasing functioning and decreasing the focus on pain, it's done in a very different way than it is in traditional CBT. So there's, a, there's some preliminary evidence for the effectiveness of ACT in pediatric chronic pain as well. It's been shown to improve pain and functioning in youth with chronic musculoskeletal pain. It's also been found to be more effective than standard medical treatment at improving pain and functioning in adolescents. And in adults with chronic pain, ACT was found to be as effective at CBT at reducing pain interference, depression, and anxiety. So ACT is a promising new psychological treatment for chronic pain, but more research is needed to support the use of ACT in pediatrics. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org. Thank you.